1: at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.mantheonpodcast.com pantheompodcasts.com. Today, as part of our Let Motown Roll series, we're recasting Nate's 2022 discussion with Brooks Long about David Ritz's incredible biography of Marvin Gaye. Email us at podcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
2: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. I'm joined once again by my colleague Brooks Long as we're discussing the oeuvre of David Ritz. Today we're looking at two books by Ritz, mainly one, Divided Soul, The Life of Marvin Gay, written entirely by Ritz, although Gay was interviewed extensively for that one. And also I use this as a supplement for my research after the dance, My Life with Marvin Gay by Jan Gay, with David Ritz, Jan Gay being Marvin's second wife. Brooks, welcome back to the show.
3: Yeah, glad to be back.
2: And this is a bit of a heavy topic. Marvin Gaye, one of the great American musicians, Rolling Stones, got What's Going On now anointed as the official number one best album of the Baby Boom era, or whatever they call their charts. Um, He's (laughs) been at pretty much a critical high since his death in the early 80s, and lots of um, issues
3: in his personal life, to
2: say the least.
3: Ooh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah he's he's uh, amazing. I I, I don't it, it seems like it was it was there was a little bit of time in between um uh brother Ray and Divided Soul for Ritz but uh he couldn't have picked two more interesting uh people and more different people to um to dive into.
2: Absolutely Right, Charles we talked about last time you were on and you know, Ray Charles comes across as this man of steel, basically. He's blind, yes. yeah, but and he he was a junkie, uh, and he was a womanizer. But he got through all that and really rode it out uh, into the sunset in fine form, you know, touring to the end of his days, having hits. Uh, not the kind of hits he had in his heyday, but was still active and successful all the way through, oh, really yeah. mastered this world. Marvin Gaye. For All His Accomplishment is Not Somebody You Can Say That About, went into a vicious downward spiral that we'll talk about later in in the late 70s, early 80s, ending in his murder by his father. And yeah, this book was very important for Ritz, I think. This was the first book that he authored solo. He was a ghostwriter for Ray Charles' autobiography. He worked closely with Marvin, multiple interviews, um, but they didn't work it out to publish an autobiography as such and then there was some controversy because david ritz is officially named as the co-author of sexual healing with marvin and um and i'm blanking on the co-composer there's three three credits on that one and there's you know ritz had to sue for that and ultimately the case was thrown out but he settled with the estate he got his credit he claims he has tape and notes that show he wrote the lyrics so we're not in a position to dispute all that, but I do think we should note that, you know, the co-writer of the song and um, Freddie Cassart, who was Marvin's manager at the time, both dispute Ritz's account of events. But nonetheless, mm. by all accounts, Ritz is credited with inspiring the name Sexual Healing. So at at a minimum, um, he, yeah, and Odell Brown was the third author on that, apologies. Um, so at a minimum, he, he acted as a key source of inspiration. So you're not going to meet come across many situations where the author is a professional writer of Ritz's caliber and has this close relationship including a collaborative relationship with the author so big doings here for yeah. David Ritz uh, definitely. Thoughts on the sexual healing
3: controversy? Well I think yeah two things uh, one is that it, uh, I think among a lot of people there was a a lot of speculation about, about David Ritz and, you know, was he trying to get over and things like that. And it's come out in more recent years that, uh, he won his lawsuit because he had a tape of him and Marvin sketching it all out. Um, and you know, I, I, I can't even say if, you know, that is definitive but it would make sense that you know that somebody who's interviewing for a book would have recordings of of you know them talking together so so uh, you know if that tape is real then that's kind of the end of the case but it, um, it you know there there certainly is uh, a, a certain amount of Suspicion sometimes about David Ritz, although it must be said that he went on from this book to do lots of collab- collaborations with uh, lots of other R and B stars, including people who were incredibly good friends with with Marvin Gaye. So,
2: absolutely, and and I, and I think that um, you know, Odell could easily have co-written the music with gay not been there when ritz and marvin worked on the lyrics and not really known what he was talking about and just been honest saying hey i didn't see the guy working on the song but that's not necessarily proof but let's dive into marvin gay and his family um you know marvin is one of plenty of the motown singers had the church background levi stubb of the four tops david ruffin of the temptations Mm -hmm. but some of them didn't diana ross of the supremes uh for one, did not have that church background. And Motown famously got black music over as pop in a way that nobody had ever done before. But Marvin was a child of the church. His father was a preacher in a very small sect called the House of God that combines black Pentecostal fervor with orthodox judaism's strict rules they worship on saturdays yeah. uh the women they've modified it so the headdresses aren't quite as exotic as they used to be but the women dress very distinctively they uh, are very into music it's a classic pentecostal church in that way that the the, the the you know the only command is that you um sing joyously and and they they When Marvin was growing up, they would essentially have a full gospel band in there, piano, guitars, bass, joyous singing. But the caveat is they did not believe in using music for secular purposes. And this is going to haunt Marvin through his whole life. Marvin's father, like I said, was a preacher. Initially, he's a fast-rising preacher, and this is a very small sect. So you could barely make a living doing this. But nonetheless, he was in good standing until he wasn't. At a certain point, he falls off. But I think one thing I want to emphasize is that Marvin Gaye Sr. was Marvin's original inspiration. He was a brilliant singer and brilliant preacher, and Marvin loved his father's religion. And that's his initial inspiration, that seeing the power of music and love and religion all tied in together is absolutely foundational for Marvin. And so even though Marvin Sr. is a horrific abuser of Marvin and to a lesser extent his other siblings – um, it's easy to overlook why Marvin cared so much what Marvin Senior thought of him. So, your take on the the Oedipal relationship here at the center of the story?
3: Yeah, well, it is it is sticky. I mean, we could do a whole episode on just their relationship alone. Um, but, um, but I think I think you're absolutely right, um, and I think. Yeah, there there is that musical aspect to the House of God, and, there's, and then there's also a musical aspect sometimes to the to the way that Black preachers preach, uh, and that seems to have had an impact on Marvin as well. Just the you know an intensity of the of the message, similar to uh, to. C.L. Franklin, um, Aretha Franklin's dad. Um, Yeah. uh, And that's an interesting contrast.
2: I'm glad you brought that up because C.L. Franklin Franklin was the big time. Here's somebody who who led big marches, who worked with Martin Luther King Jr., who lived in a mansion, who – was very wealthy, earned it because he was such a successful preacher for such a big church, one of the Detroit's biggest black churches, whereas Marvin Gaye Sr. is a pauper by comparison and eventually quits, stops yeah, preaching, altogether. and just lives around the house frequently wearing women's clothes. And this is something where we kind of have to put an editor note or trigger warning. Yeah, The way people saw trans issues in the 40s and 50s and 60s was very different from the way it was seen in the 70s, 80s, at, you know, the end of Marvin's life, and very different from the way it's seen now. So I think we should have some extra sympathy for Marvin Gaye Sr., who is somebody who felt compelled to wear women's clothing, apparently he was heterosexual. But, but um, you know, and I don't know, He he's not alive. He died in 1998. He's not here to tell us if he identified as a woman or, you know, how he would have responded to today's uh, dialogue about trans issues. But, that's definitely a complicating factor and it's something that was very hard on marvin because especially pre-sexual revolution it was something that was seen in a very negative light and you know he added an e to the end of his name to cut down on the jokes at least and also to distance himself from his father and you know th- this is just a complicated stew and then you've got his mother in there as well like when marvin talks about the church Almost the first thing he says, he says, I love my, my father's religion and I loved singing and I loved those church ladies hugging me to their giant bosoms, you know, and yeah. and and his you know, there's very much an edible thing with his mother there. You know, she's the protector, she's the one. And there's a third factor, and I'm gonna play our first song right quick and explain this. This is Marvin's first hit for Motown, a song that he co wrote, a stubborn kind of fella. And that was Stubborn Kind of Fellow by Marvin Gaye. And I chose that song. I mean, it's his first hit, but it's also, you know, watching some of the documentaries about Marvin, I, I think it was Mary Wilson who chose that to say, you know, there were three Marvins. There was the beautiful singer. There was the tortured home, you know, the mm. the public figure, And then there's the stubborn kind of fella. And somebody else in Motown said that he's the kind of guy who liked to drive the wrong way down one way streets. <laughs> <laughs> he he had this dynamic where he had this powerful father figure that he constantly rebelled against and he would recreate that drama over and over again through the course of his life, whether it's with Barry Gordy or Harvey Fuqua or um, various managers or the IRS. He constantly rebelled against authority because he was a stubborn kind of fella.
3: Yeah, um, man, it, I think it's worth uh, contrasting again with, with, uh, David Ritz's former subject, uh, uh, Ray Charles, um, Ray is just so in control. And even though his childhood was, was, uh, it, in many ways, not traditional and, and sort of looked down upon, um, it, somehow Ray, even as he was going blind and his father wasn't really in his life at all, he had a certain amount of stability that Marvin just never displays at any point in his life. And uh, things just always seem out of control for him. Um, and and Marvin Sr., uh, Really went out of his way to to let Marvin Jr. know that he didn't really love him, and uh, and you know I, I think even I we're skipping way ahead, but after uh, after Marvin Jr. died, Marvin Senior was asked, did you did you like your son? And he says, well, I didn't dislike him. Uh, Damn. <laughs> and that's just <laughs> that that just says so much about uh about Marvin's instability and he just hops from, you know, one parental figure to another throughout his life and never really has has any any amount of emotional stability there but I do want to say uh one thing that really sticks out in this book um which, which is that uh, there is this, there's this archetype, there's this trope of the good black Christian family, and uh, you know, it's it's certainly not a myth. There are certain certainly black families out there that are plenty stable, but there's this trope in in art, and you see this a lot in biographies where there are these families that. All the other black families look up to and you say, wow, you know, uh, wish we could be like that family. It's a very aspirational thing. And I think the, the Cosby show sort of is the epitome of that. Um, and <clears throat> and, uh, and Bill Cosby's
2: fall is is the epitome of that. Yes. Yeah.
3: And and the the underside is exactly what Cosby's life was was like. And you see this uh, this trope come up a lot in uh, in a lot of black art. And Tyler Perry is has made millions of dollars off of, <laughs> off of this dichotomy. But um, but uh, it's it's around because it, it's real and, and it does crop up. Um, and I I think there there's something about keeping up appearances um, when, you know, inside the house or inside the person, things aren't going nearly as well that I think follows Marvin's career and the way he approaches his career. He sort of, if he didn't invent the idea of this like R&B lover man, he definitely performed it um there's like r before there's male r and singers before marvin gay and particularly before let's get it on and there are male r singers afterwards and it's just a different thing and he did that but at the Absolutely. same time <laughs> he resented that
2: yeah his his views on sex are very interesting he 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 viewed all secular singing as a sin, and I don't yeah. think he ever really let that go. And he, you know, starts singing with doo-wop groups as a teen, and he loves the music and he's passionate about it. But he always saw it as not what he should be doing. And also, it's a, it's a, it's there's a factor of history there black men weren't free to be that sexual before Marvin. I mean, you know, before, and even during Marvin's career in the sixties, he wasn't free to be as sexual as he became in the seventies. That's very much a product of the sexual revolution and black liberation, because that's the kind of thing so many black men have been murdered for and are still murdered for to this day. We've got a so screwed up society and culture about the way we sexualize black men. So it's a very, very much a third rail for performers Up until Marvin's point, and Marvin just blew the doors wide open on that. And, you know, I think, you know, so many performers uh, today should thank Marvin for that freedom that he helped help them win. But, you know, he he loves church music, but he's also listening to, uh, you know, Rudy West with the Five Keys, gospel singer, Clyde McFadder with the Drifters. uh, And
3: underrated uh, guy.
2: Yeah, very much underrated. I need to do an episode on him at some point. Little Willie John, who I've done an episode on, who's yeah. Detroit's great uh, soul singer of the era, and Ray Charles. Um, those are the four black R&B singers that Marvin cited. He also loved Johnny Ray, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and especially Perry Como. And and we'll talk about it in a minute. He he aspired to that kind of mm-hmm. pop throne. He is also a jazz fan, love Billie Holiday and Miles Davis, but you pointed out there's somebody missing from his list of his big four.
3: Yeah, I just can't believe that Sam Cooke wasn't a big influence. Um, it, it, it's just, I, I mean, he put an E on the end of his name the the, the same way that uh, Sam Cooke has an E on the end of Cooke. Uh, it, I... I and I wonder
2: I, if it's because Sam Cook is too close to home, and also because Sam so. Cook was the one who got the heat for going secular. Yes, and and I think Marvin May, you know, and as crazy as Marvin was, he might have actually resented Sam for that. He might never forgiven Sam for going secular. <laughs> it's, 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 he's not around to ask. But yeah, so just a, it could
3: be, but yeah. uh, but also I I think, and this is just ominous, but. Um, as Marvin's career got going, Barry Gordy, when uh, Sam Cooke died, was thinking about creating a, uh, a movie bio with uh, with Marvin starring as Sam Cooke, and Marvin didn't want to do it because he didn't want to he didn't want to play the part of a of uh, r and B singer that got shot to death, which is just yeah. Oof.
2: Yeah, it is. And, and you know, several of the documentaries mentioned Marvin had prophetic dreams as a child of being a singer in the whole world uh, listening to him sing. And apparently he also had prophetic visions of being shot to death and and, and basically ensured it would happen by buying ensured. his father a gun. Yeah. And, you know, so uh, the Oedipal connections just pile up in this story. I mean, there's so, so much fate and predestination and doom and you know self-fulfilling prophecies all through this but let's keep it moving we need to listen to another song and let's let's jump ahead a few years to marvin's famous duets with tammy terrell and this is you're all i need to get by by ashford and simpson And that was Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell doing "You're All I Need to Get By," written and produced by Ashford and Simpson. Brilliant production team, incredibly powerful duet. But let's get Marvin there. So, so Marvin is doing R&B doo-wop in D.C. He even spends some time in the Air Force. Total disaster. Is anyone who knows anything about Marvin Gaye could see coming. <laughs> um, and then comes back, forms a group called the Marquise. Uh, he's singing second tenor and sometimes baritone harmony. He can do it all. Everybody recognizes he's quite talented, but he initially, at least, is not the lead vocalist. And through sort of a weird sequence of events, ends up meeting Bo Diddley, who produces a record on him, record flops, but then Bo Diddley ends up introducing him to Harvey Fuqua of the Moonglows, who's a big player at Chess Records, big big key artist in the, in the doo-wop era, and uh, Harvey pulls a James Brown trick where he replaces the clubs one night, brings Marvin and his crew in to replace him wholesale. Just a classic RB move.
1: Oh.
3: <laughs> yeah, those uh, <laughs> you know, some of the most um, most influential band leaders just happen to be some of the uh, I, I don't. I don't Uh, Yeah, underhanded is a nice word for it. Yeah, (laughs) I'm trying to find the nicest words for it, but uh, but you know, this is this is secular music. It's it's um, pretty cutthroat, uh, especially at the time. It still is to a certain extent, but uh, but back then, you know, Marvin was uh, you know just out of his teenage years. Um, He's He's, he's going to go along with it because he doesn't know any better, um, but it, it works out for him. And uh, Fuqua shows him this really innovative thing called blow harmony, where Fuqua does woos instead of doos. And that little change may may seem insignificant, but it means so much. To Marvin's singing, he's always doing these woos. And, and when you do that, your, your chest just like just like uh, spews um, a really, really powerful sound that, uh, that makes a lot of sense.
2: Absolutely. It's like he gets a master class in harmony singing from yeah. Fuqua. And and
3: he's gonna apply that later on
2: when he sings harmony with himself on what's going on and going forward. And you know, you listen to some of the tapes on YouTube of Marvin singing harmony for himself and it's just incredible. Oh yeah. And you know, and and, and Harvey, like I said, Fuqua's a big wheel at chess records in Chicago. So Marvin ends up singing backup with Etta James on Chuck Berry's back in the USA. I mean that's just heavy duty to me. Like the idea of Etta James and Marvin Gaye backing up Chuck Berry on that song. And, you know, so he's, he's in the mix. They do some records with the moon glows, even a couple with Marvin singing lead, but Fuqua, Makes a move around this time where the chess one of the chess brothers actually introduces him to Gwen Gordy, Barry Gordy's right. sister, who's an entrepreneur in her own right and, and has a couple record labels. Harvey has signed Marvin Gaye to a lifetime contract at this point, and the two of them end up migrating to Detroit where Harvey romances and ultimately marries Gwen Gordy and Marvin and And this is a great quote from the book. Marvin says, Harvey was the one who showed me that romance could do you a world of good in business. And Marvin ends up hooking up and marrying Anna Gordy, who's 17 years older than he is and is also Barry Gordy's sister, in a very canny alliance. And it's also a love deal. I don't want it to sound like... Marvin's prostituting himself, although he sometimes described it in those terms himself, although he also described singing in those terms. He felt like singing to these audiences of aroused women was prostituting himself and and caused him all kinds of performance anxiety and worry. Um, but this is just a really savvy move on his part. And it also brings him into a very different family, a family that in some ways lives up to those ideals of the bougie black family that the gays had aspired to or tried to display. And I'm talking about the Gordys, of course.
3: Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, yeah, it seems like Pops Gordy was, was, uh, uh a pretty cool, pretty cool dude. Um, and, and his, his, uh, children are, are just these dynamic people that have all kinds of ideas. And, and because of the ways their, their parents have operated, they have opportunities that a lot of, of uh, Black families just didn't to, uh, to make some of these ambitions come true. And it actually, I believe Anna starts a record label before Barry does Berry, yep. you know Barry is uh, writing songs for Jackie Wilson and doing really well with that in the late fifties, but Anna's really the the one that that uh, gets things going and and then Motown kind of absorbs Anna records uh yeah, it's a very savvy move by by Marvin Gaye. Uh, Motown Records really, in, in a lot of ways, it is kind of like almost literal black royalty in Detroit. Um, yeah. And Barry is the king, <laughs> uh, the benevolent king, and uh, and... Is he's got everybody on feudal contracts. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's one thing that fascinates
2: me about Barry Gordy. I mean, you know, I view Barry Gordy as the most successful musician of his era by far, you know, because he's a musician. He's a singer, you know, songwriter in his own right. Um, I don't know of any songs he sang on record, but he's a great songwriter, producer in his own right, and has this unique ability to attract other people like him to himself and builds this – team. I mean, I don't think anybody to this day has ever matched. There have been some great record labels, but I don't think anybody has ever matched what Motown had together nope. at its peak. And even people, and virtually all of them had fallen outs with him except for maybe Smokey Robinson and his sisters. But even people like the Holland Brothers who had decades-long legal wars with Barry Gordy always acknowledged that he was a loving person and that there was a loving family environment he might be stealing you blind for your publishing rights (laughs) (laughs) but uh but somehow he's paying people he's not you know one of these guys I'm blanking on the the name of the guy from Roulette Records that was such a criminal I mean Barry Gordy shouldn't be compared to that kind of you know straight up grifter but he did end up getting richer than everybody else by an order of magnitude. And, you know, but it's this loving family and it's very competitive. And he's he's pulling people around him like Smokey Robinson, who's pretty unique at Motown because he's not only a singer, but he's also a songwriter and producer. And most of the time, the lines are very strict. You know, Eddie Holland sang, but then he quit singing and became part of Holland Dozier Holland. And, you know, people like Mickey Stevenson and, and Clarence Paul and others, they couldn't record their own stuff. They were producers, yeah. but Ashford they had a Simpson. Yeah. Ashford and Simpson, you know, and obviously they go on to a very successful singing yeah. uh, career on their own after they leave Motown. But Marvin partly, I assume because he's got Anna um, and also because he is the stubborn kind of fellow and just,
3: uh, to me, managing Marvin Gaye would be one of the worst nightmares,
2: <laughs> <you know?
3: laughs> and, and, and and the greatest dream at the same time. Uh, there, oh, yeah. I, I think what you're saying about Barry Gordy is is mirrored in in Marvin Gaye. People were constantly exasperated with Marvin Gaye, but they always loved him and and admired him too. Barry was constantly exasperated. With Marvin Gaye, but he loved him and was in awe of his musical brilliance. Um, and uh, Marvin could never quite wrap his head around just how much Barry appreciated him in that way. But uh, but he was he was loved. I think it's it's worth mentioning that uh, again to bring things back to to Ray Charles. Marvin really felt and I think uh, everybody at Motown really felt like Ray Charles had sold out and uh, he, he started to use. And I, and I definitely see the point. Ray had used these therapy kind of lazy strings and these heavenly choirs. Uh, He kind of put that in the background of music where he's still singing amazingly and uh, and rode that into the mainstream and to number one many times. Um, Marvin and other people at Motown really felt like he had sold out in that way. And, and that, you know, he was very clearly playing to white audiences and didn't care about black audiences anymore. And, uh, Barry Gordy was also displeased with the way that Jackie Wilson was being, was being produced and he's got all these therapy strings going on. Um, and and it just didn't feel right. I think it, I think there's something to that attitude, and Motown by no means was was ignoring the white market, but the way they went about it was very black. Um, I think that's important.
2: Absolutely. And let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll hear, in light of what you just said, kind of a surprising – what. Marvin's first attack on the pop market was. And so everything you said is true, but nonetheless, Marvin Gaye's initial mm-hmm. angle was to be somebody who was aiming himself at that white pop market his first uh, Motown album is is ballads and standards and that's it wasn't just Marvin that did that I mean the Supremes recorded whole albums but I think it was uh, Rogers and Hammerstein um, <laughs> you, you know there was they played the Copacabana Marvin played of the Copacabana you know they they were they were very much watching what Ray Charles had done and like we discussed when we talked about Ray Charles, that worked brilliantly for him, but I think the doors were kind of closing on that option by the time the Motown people came along and they didn't realize what was gonna, that the real way to, for them for success with the white audience is gonna be like what's going on and following the Beatles and other rock artists who have these rock era serious work rather than a pop era serious work. or you know So anyway, but Marvin tries this pop stuff, it doesn't work. And so then he gets to break the rules of Motown and co-write a song, comes out with stubborn kind of fellow works with Mickey Stevenson and Barry Gordy on that. And, and, you know, for somebody who was resistant and didn't want to, he didn't go to the Char- Motown charm school. Um, he, he definitely didn't go to the choreography school very much. <laughs> no. uh, and, and, but, and, you know, felt like I don't have to do that stuff. But when he, but he was also very competitive and wanted to be successful and he was just so talented and also so churchy. It was, I think, it was very easy for him to do R&B because it was in his bones. That kind of, to me, you know, hard R&B comes out of gospel, and Marvin had it, and it was easy for him. And he struggled with the standards. He wouldn't master that kind of stuff until very late in his career. And when he did, he did master, you know, the Sinatra style.
3: Yeah, it, but, it was remarkable.
2: Yeah, yeah, but his early attempts at it. He just doesn't bring enough Marvin Gaye into it. It's beautifully sung. The songs are well selected and well arranged, but he's not bringing the Marvin Gaye. And that's what he does bring uh, to the RB stuff that he does and quickly goes on a run. A- and, you know, the thing, one thing I found fascinating about this is Marvin's unique to my knowledge in that he had hits with Mickey Stevenson, Clarence Paul, who's Stevie Wonder's main guy, Holland Dozier Holland, Norman Whitfield smoky robinson and ashford and simpson i can't think of another motown artist that worked successfully with that many different producers usually if you were trying different producers it was because you know like the no hit supremes couldn't get a hit with yeah. gordy couldn't get a hit with smoky robinson go with Holland Dozier holland and ride that out until you know they can't anymore because of legal disputes marvin's just flitting around working with producer after producer it's really amazing and it might make him the definitive motown artist
3: In many ways, yeah, you can you can go through Marvin's um, Marvin's discography in the 60s and really get a good sense of the Motown sound, at least the solo Motown sound. And there's, um, you know, the, the sound that they had for groups was was a little different. But uh, but even then, eventually he starts uh, producing the originals, and then he starts doing multi-tracking, and um, and he uh, he's he's kind of yeah you could call him the Rosetta Stone of uh, yeah, of good. of Motown. That's that's accurate, I think. And so he has these
2: solo hits, but at the same time. Very early on, he starts doing duets first with Mary Wells, who's the initial queen of Motown before the rise of the Supremes. And then you know she has some legal disputes with Barry Gordy. So Kim Wesson steps up and she and Marvin have hits together. But it's really when Tammy Terrell, who had been a backup singer for James Brown and a lover of James Brown and a victim of James Brown. Yeah. Um, partners with Marvin Gaye that it really takes off. And they have a series of duets, not all of which are produced by Ashford and Simpson, but I, I think that's really the team where Ashford and Simpson first make their mark at Motown. You know, they were kind of newcomers who came in after Holland Dozier Holland left and Tammy and Marvin have this incredible musical love affair and by all accounts it's strictly a musical love affair she was seeing david ruffin of the temptations at that time another handful <laughs> <You> oh. <laughs> know, not somebody i would want my love is singing not somebody i would want my daughter involved with by any means yeah. and you know a, a, and james brown apparently had really hurt tammy and then she collapses in marvin's arms on stage in 1967 lingers for i want to say another 18 months and passes and this really, really impacts Marvin. And and this has also impacted his marriage, because Anna was jealous of all three of his duet singers, even if that was unfounded. But he was having affairs with groupies, and Anna was having affairs. There's a story about Marvin chasing him in a motel, chasing randomly going to a motel, and randomly walking up to a door and knocking on it and catching Anna with another man. I don't know that that's true. <laughs> it's
3: impossible <laughs> to check that, but that was Marvin's version of events. And yeah, it, it, he just felt the room in his soul. <laughs> I don't know, man. But <laughs> yeah, it, lots of weird things have happened. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, and, and you know, and there are accounts of Anna um, hitting Marvin with the heel of her shoe at their wedding reception. You know, so they had a violent relationship and. Apparently, Anna was giving as good as she got, although you got to clarify, men bigger and stronger and and tend to be more at fault in these domestic violence situations. But it also takes two to tango, and Anna had a lot of resources on her own. Very powerful person.
3: And was 17 years older than than Marvin.
2: Yeah, and and is also sexually experienced and sexually open-minded in a way that Marvin was not and was not ever comfortable with. And so, you know, just... That relationship got, brought Marvin a lot of good things and great things and also left some scars and, and twisted Marvin. And also around this time, he cuts a song with Norman Whitfield, I Heard It Through the Grapevine. And he's the second person at Motown to cut it. Smokey Robinson had cut it earlier. It doesn't come out on either of them, rejected by the quality commission, the committee at both points. But then it gets to number one with Gladys Knight's and the Gladys Knight and the Pips doing what I would consider a pretty standard 1967 Motown version. Then Norman Whitfield comes back at Barry Gordy a year later and says, let's release that Marvin version because it sounds like 1968 and it's an epic hit. It's the biggest hit in Motown (laughs) history. And it basically allows Marvin to coast on that for the next couple of years. But to me, it's just fascinating that Marvin and Norman Whitfield – are making a track that is so 68 in the middle of, in early 67. I mean, Bob Dylan and the band are about the only people that are on that 68 vibe in 67 to the same extent as Whitfield and Gay. And it is just, it's been overplayed. It's been played into the ground, but my God, it
3: is a seminal track. Yeah, I think that's, I think you're, you're making an interesting it's an interesting thought there because sixty seven is, you know, this time of of great hope and and energy and and sixty eight is you're you're headed into despair, um, and wondering where did it all go wrong? <clears throat> and those two different I really, really like the Gladys Knight and the Pips version. It's great. Of- it, it is it is great. It's a it's a lot of fun. That's the one you want to play on the dance floor. If you're a DJ, <laughs> uh, you do not want to play the Marvin Gaye version, or maybe you would, but you don't want to you don't want to pay too much attention to uh, to the mood of that track. It yeah. is really a, a masterpiece, Marvin's version, um, and you know some credit has to go to. Norman Whitfield for for uh, being a production genius. Uh, Sometimes I I think he he overcooked it a little bit with some of the temptations stuff, ball of confusion, things like that. Yeah, you know. But it gets into
2: this ornate psychedelic sound, and this is one of the things where I think fate kind of stepped in because because of Marvin's grief at, at Tammy Terrell's passing and. His own stubbornness and stage fright, he he takes the and then and the massive success of I heard of the grapevine. He finally makes real money as a performer uh, from this. And just, it allows him uh-oh. to kind of take a breather for a couple of years. And it's exactly through those kind of awkward psychedelic years where people like Sly Stone and The Temptations are reformulating soul and and innovating funk and Marvin gets to kind of step back and not be on the scene during that yeah. period, and then and he says it, you know, in the autobiography. And maybe this is hindsight in his part, but maybe he was conscious of it at the time. He's he's recharging his batteries through that whole period, and I think it's also very important to the thing about Marvin Gaye is he's an artist who's living in a fantasy world who acknowledges that he creates these interpersonal dramas as a way of fueling his muse as a way of being inspired and being in these heightened emotional states to create his art he consciously he said artists must suffer for their art for the public you know for their audience and he certainly did did that to himself and to everyone around him but then he comes through with what's going on. And this is one area where the book is really frustrating because it doesn't talk much about the recording of what's going on. And, and there's not a 33 and a third book on that album yet, which seems crazy to me. Um, but there's, there's, it doesn't go into the story of the making of what's going on. We know James Jamerson was on it. It was still in Detroit. The sessions are very different. Um, and obviously it's it's this widely acknowledged masterpiece.
3: Yeah, that is... Well, I think there we have to, to remember that D- Divided Soul came out in what? 85? <laughs> I think. Yeah, 85, so- 86, something like that. 85. And um, uh, I think that Ritz, Ritz definitely talks about the impact. He talks about the artistic success of what's going on. But yeah, it is missing... The actual making of it, I, I I think you're right, and I think since then, since uh, Marvin died, uh, that uh, recording time has really gone into legend, really, and and so you know there there are lots of stories that we've heard since then of, about that recording that isn't really here in. In divided soul, uh, and a lot of that really comes from the Funk Brothers and the belated appreciation of the Motown house band. Uh, Absolutely, because it's really as much as it is a Marvin Gaye masterpiece. It's also a masterpiece of um, of the Funk Brothers. I, in fact. To be somewhat controversial about it, it may even be song for song more of a victory for them um, than than uh, than for Marvin. Controversial. Let's hear a song. This is. <laughs> i let you it. Yeah, four great on, uh, songs, on four classic songs, four <laughs> of the best songs you'll ever hear, but there are more than four songs on the album.
2: Yes, yes. And let's hear uh, What's Happening, Brother. <laughs>
1: War is hell, when will it end? When will people start getting together again? Are things really getting better, like the newspapers say?
3: What else is new, my friends?
2: And that's what's happening brother a song marvin wrote inspired by his brother frankie telling him about his experiences in vietnam and and apparently marvin and his brother would talk this over and just cry in the bedroom together at the horror of what was going on in vietnam and and to me you know that's the greatness of marvin Gaye. is this you know he described himself as a sponge and he took in all this pain and he was so aware not just of his own personal issues, but what was going on in the world. And and he makes this statement, you know, and this is an album Barry Gordy did not want to release. He did not want to risk Marvin Gaye's superstardom by doing something controversial. He had always stayed, kept Motown away from controversy. But Marvin pushes it through, and it's immediately a success, and it's immediately acknowledged as a masterpiece. And like you said, yeah, when I, I remember when I bought this album in high school after hearing so much about it, and obviously, you know, like you say, that there's just that run of great songs, especially at the start. There might be a little filler in there, but it's also kind of a suite of songs. And so
1: yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it fits yeah.
2: together. And it might be that the whole is better than the sum of its parts. I mean, the the critical stuff isn't really what we do on the show, but the the net effect is he made this album that's an acknowledged masterpiece. It's also the first record to credit Motown musicians. And it's also one of the first records that took Black artists into the album era. Like, black artists have been so far ahead musically up until the album era for various reasons. And, you know, it wasn't Otis Redding, it wasn't James Brown. Arguably, it was Sly Stone. Sly Stone has a case for having made great albums all the way through, but he never made yeah. anything that was mm-hmm. such an obvious masterpiece. And Jimi Hendrix is in a different category because he was essentially a, an English rocker in the marketplace.
3: I think- I think the person that, that might be missing there is Curtis Mayfield. Uh, ah, Curtis said, Curtis said had been working and, and doing socially conscious stuff for a long time in R&B. And of course in jazz and jazz, it, they've been yeah. working on that for, for a long time. Like we insist the uh, Max Roach and uh, Abby Lincoln thing. Um, sure. And of course, um,
2: and Mayfield's uh, work with the impressions. Yeah, I should have thought of those because that last I highly recommend those last three, four albums. Curtis yeah. Mayfield is still on with the impressions. Just incredible stuff. But none of it had the impact of Marvin Gaye doing it.
3: You're I absolutely mean, right. This was this was the representation of the turning point.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and Marvin, you know, <laughs> being Marvin, he capitalizes on the success Uh resist touring you know he's always been somebody who was prone to canceled shows at at the last minute and and very difficult (laughs) to deal with and this is another thing that's left out of the book and partly because it might not have been known at the time when Ritz wrote the book but marvin did a whole follow-up album to what's going on called you're the man and when that you're the man single it didn't flop but it wasn't as big a hit as the stuff off what's going on you know it was kind of his response to watergate he just they just pulled the whole album and um and it's a great album, you know. I I, I haven't had the tie. It Only came out last year, um, but for yeah, old time music
3: nerds, man, you know that was a big day. <laughs> a big day of my world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I need to go back to that one. I when I heard it, I really liked it a lot. I think that's. It's interesting when these long lost recordings come out um, because they they have this feeling of oldness to them even though they're completely new. So I'm gonna to have to to internalize that over time the same way that people have been internalizing what's going on for you know the last fifty years. Yep. yep. Almost.
2: Yes. And and yeah, so we, we're not through digesting you're the man, but it's definitely significant work. And I'm really happy it's out there. And and it's just interesting to think about an artist at this level, it's a lot like Prince thinking, you know, I can't do manic Monday. That doesn't fit my persona. I've got to put that for somebody else, you know, or or that song Sinead O'Connor did, you know, somebody who's that talented and in the, and aware of the marketplace that he knows, you know, well, this isn't the right move for me. Uh, And, you know, so he takes some time off and then he meets a 16 year old girl Uh, Jan Hunt, I think, was her last maiden name. And she's the daughter of Slim Goyard, who is a uh, 40s R&B jazz singer in L.A. that I talked with R.J. Smith about. So it's just fascinating, all these characters interweaving and connecting. Her mother was a white woman, so she's very much... Um, you know, a light skinned, beautiful woman. She's 16 when he meets her. Obviously these days, that kind of thing is frowned upon, but it's <laughs> 17 years younger than he was, just as he was 17 younger, years younger That's than right. his first wife. And unfortunately for Jan and Marvin, cocaine has come in a big way. Marvin started smoking pot back when he was on the road with the moon in the fifties. And that was one thing, but cocaine comes in in this period and it's just a blizzard all through the early 70s. They've got plenty of money. The party scene is big. And when the freebasing hits in the late 70s is when it really becomes disastrous for Marvin. But Jan and Marvin's whole relationship is dominated by cocaine and and this incredible sexual passion um, that he chronicles in his next album, Let's Get It On, which is another absolute triumph.
3: That that situation with uh with Jan in 2021. Oh, hey, Marvin, you ain't getting away <laughs> with that one, man. <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, n- nor nor should he, Let, let's be honest, nor should he. Um but uh but it was normalized and in fact uh her mother introduced them. Um and, uh, uh, that, that, that's, that's one of those, I, I don't know, you read her book. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's intense. Um, and it's, you know, one of these
2: things where she's now a very much a grown woman and is thankful for her time with Marvin. So, you know, it's yeah. not my place to judge and 17 was the age of consent at the time. So, you know, um. I think it's definitely something that should be open for criticism, and he did become abusive, especially towards the end. Um, but they very much loved each other; they were very much partners, and their on and off relationship dominates the rest of his life. And you know, after um, let's go ahead and hear our last song. Um, let's see. Let's go. Let's go with "Love Party." This is from um, his final album. Midnight Love and this this is Love Party by Marvin Gaye. was love party from his final album which was his only album on cbs it's all the only time he left motown he left motown at the end of his career oh that's ca-
3: well that's uh love party is actually his from his last album with motown
2: oh yeah you're right you're right in our lifetime my bad my bad yeah um and this this is the album that caused him to leave motown because he was you know taking so long to do that album and we got to catch up a little bit to get to yeah In our lifetime. First, he does I Want You, which is an album that was written and produced by Leon Ware with help from T Bone Ross, Diana Ross's brother. And they essentially, that whole album was coming together, and Barry Gordy said, Marvin, you need to get with Leon. He's got something for you. And Marvin loved it. And that's an album that didn't get the immediate critical plaudits, although it was very successful commercially, but now is recognized as absolutely a hallmark, you know, of the Quiet Storm era, a, a huge inspiration on the neo soul movement. So yet another masterpiece for Marvin. He finally gets out there, does some touring. He does a live album that's massively successful because it's got "Got to Give It Up" on it, which is his. Yeah. It's a brilliant song. It's it's the Wallflowers dance hit. It's it's a guy admitting I can't dance, which is
3: you know, just Marvin being candid. Yeah, uh, yep, yeah.
2: yeah. his his whole thing, and and it's a massive success, goes double platinum. But again, this is a guy who would not pay his taxes, even though he had accountants and managers who were telling him, Marvin, pay your taxes. You know, he's he's got a studio in L.A. That he's living in and and recording albums he's finally divorces Ann gordy anna gordy and has blown his money and had so much of his assets seized while he's on tour because of the irs situation that he does a whole album as alimony here my dear and it's rejected by the public on initial release i mean he initially said i'm going to make the worst album ever and, and you know <laughs> she's going to get all the money from it but he couldn't help himself and he made another Classic. I mean, it's much more difficult than than what's going on or um, Midnight Love, but it's um, it's well worth the the study. And it's just another it's it's exhibitionism. I mean, it is yeah. you know uh, no holds barred. But musically, it's fascinating. And then he's working on In Our Lifetime, which was originally going to be his disco album. And I'm blanking on what the title of that was going to be, but it was taking him so long to get together and get that out. Motown ultimately stole the tapes from one of his guitar players and puts it out in a way Marvin didn't approve of. Certain songs were unfinished. They took the question mark off of the title. It was supposed to be in our lifetime question mark, meaning, you know, is nuclear war going to happen? Another fascinating album. Um, And that's it for him and Motown. You know, between the divorce from Barry's sister and this album going out without his permission, you know, he can't deal with it. He jumped ship. Harvey Fuqua comes back into his life. He has this massive downward spiral, and for, forgive me for rushing, but we're just running out of time. But sure, he he you know he spends time in Hawaii, living in a bread truck, um, has his young son with him at some points. Goes to England, yeah. promoter Jeffrey Krueger gets him to England, where he does a pretty successful tour and then manages to stand up Princess Margaret. I mean, <laughs> 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 you know, uh, yeah, if you think Meghan Markle's having a hard time, that was just not <laughs> something you did uh, as a black performer in the 70s. Um, you know, oh, man. B- Burns All His Bridges gets into a very, very dark place in London. Women around him all the time. He's freebasing, free-basing cocaine. The Belgian promoter, Freddie Cousart, Kind of comes to his rescue, takes him to a small town on the North Sea, just lets him live and heal and recover and get clean. That's when he records sexual healing, cuts this deal with CBS, and his old mentor, Harvey Fuqua, comes back into the picture. And Marvin's the credited producer on Midnight Love, but Harvey was very involved in that production. And all is well. He, he makes an album. He wants to do a commercial album. He's competitive. He wants to get back on the charts. It succeeds. And then he has to go back to the States. His mother's very ill. He has lots of legal issues to deal with there. He, he wants to make the money from touring. Goes back to the States. Goes on tour. The tour is, at some performances, very successful. Later performances on the tour, disastrous. So particularly a gig at the Radio City Music Hall. And then moves back in with his mother and father. He's moved them from D.C. to L.A., bought him a big mansion. And, you know, on that last tour, he Marvin had a room. He had a Coke dealer on one side of him and he had his preacher on the other side. He goes home and his mother is in the middle with Marvin on one side and Marvin Gaye Sr. on the other side. Marvin buys his father a gun and and groupies are still coming to the house. People are, you know, all kinds of hangers on are coming and going. And I can understand from Marvin Sr.'s perspective, I wouldn't want to have that in my house either, you know. And they, you know, they get into it. Marvin Sr.'s been yelling at at Marvin's mother. Marvin beats him up, which is something he'd always wanted to do, had never done apparently, and apparently beat him viciously.
3: Yeah, (laughs) got to him.
2: Yeah, and Marvin Sr. took that gun that Marvin had bought him and killed him with it. And,
3: you know, it's just... Uh, it is, it, it, it's, it's really a tragedy. And, <clears throat> I mean, one thing that should be said about, about Marvin Gaye is that this guy had it really rough in his childhood and his relationship with his dad... Uh, never really got much better it seemed like his dad had some really really deep issues that were were not addressed uh, the the way that they could have been and uh, and um, and his son you know absolutely suffered for it um yeah, but I mean- it, it should be said that uh, that for somebody who had that kind of life. Marvin actually did pretty good. It said that, you know, he was really lazy and took forever to make albums and stuff. But, you know, comparatively, <laughs> he did really well. Yeah, he um, put together really
2: uh, I mean, a body of work that will stand with anybody's, you know, absolutely. I mean, anybody. Absolutely.
3: That run from What's Going On and, you know, I only put it down because because you know it's it's seen as number one. But my, what's going on is great. And that run from what's going on to Here My Dear is amazing. Trouble Man, let's get it on. Uh I want you. Those are just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful albums. And and you know, even as all this turmoil is going on in my lifetime is still really good. And Midnight Love is just Fantastic. And you would have thought that he had the the comeback that he needed for forever. But um, but this is uh, the case uh, of of cocaine just like just just uh, making things a lot worse. Absolutely. uh, There were times when he probably should have should have died before he did. (laughs) yeah
2: and and apparently at the end he was just a broken man and i've i've lost people and i've i've seen that you know i've known people who had something happen to them so shattering that they could never come back from it and apparently he was in that state and you know manipulated these circumstances and i also want to mention you know first ballot hall of famer from the 70s album but also a first ballot hall of famer if he had died after Uh, heard it through the grapevine, He still got one of the great bodies of work of any artist of that era. You know, it was singles rather than albums. So just the the amount of accomplishment in his life is incredible. It's, thank you, Marvin. I mean, you know, it's just a blessing to everybody with ears that's alive today and able to hear it. And, you know, and, you know, prayers for the whole family, man. I mean, even Marvin Sr., that guy really, I cannot imagine having to live with that. And he lived with that for like till 1998. Now, I don't know if he was capable of grasping the magnitude of what he had done. Um, But I would not want that on my karma.
3: (laughs) Yeah. The, the grace is that I, I may have this wrong, but I'm not sure if, um, if something happened with, with uh, Marvin's mom I think he, she paid his bail or something like that. And he, for somehow he didn't end up ever serving any time in prison. And, um, uh, well, you know, yeah. I- he has he a more feel about that, but yeah,
2: he, he got off, and you know it is what it is. But he did he was divorced from his wife, so she was free of him. Although, as far as I know, she was never that abusive. But anyway, it's time to wrap. This Nathan Wilcox and Brooks Long. We've been discussing "Divided Soul: The Life of Marvin Gaye" by David Ritz, also "After the Dance: My Life with Marvin Gaye" by Jan Gay. And when you come back, we're going after the big one, Aretha Franklin. Might need two hours for that one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the let it roll podcast on twitter at let it roll cast and check out our website at let it roll thursday nate welcomes greg beats to discuss the austin music scene of the 1990s let it roll is a pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com